Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today is Friday, February 23rd, and I am happy to be with you, and happy to be with my good old integral buddy and comrade, Dr. Keith Witt. Hey, Keith. Hey, Jeff. Great to be with you. The, the shrinking pundit right again. Right on, man. Yibye <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was thinking this is probably our over 20 discussions we've had about everything in, in, in the world. Yeah. And today, we're going to do a, a little bit of a book report on a book that you recommended we read, uh, Keith. And, and I know you've been doing a lot of thinking on this, so I really want to get into where you're at with it. But it's a book on big data, and that's up these days, and the interiority of big data. And it's a book with a great title. The title is Everybody Lies. <laughs> the subtitle is Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And it's written by a fancy Harvard, Stanford social scientist. Uh, his name's Brett Stevens Davidowitz. And, and he set his sights on mining these big troves of data that have, you know, collecting daily and finding that in many ways, they're a more accurate barometer of the culture than the conventional ways of getting into the, you know, understanding the culture. And, and, and it's cool because it's evolution in action. It's, it's an example of the lower right quadrant, this technology revealing uh, aspects of our interiority and our collective interiority. And it's really very cool, it, you know, in terms of a, a, a podcast that is on daily evolving, this is, you know, right up our alley. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I'll get into, I guess I'll just get into some of the uh, specifics as we go, go along. But Keith, uh, again, you recommended this book. You've been reading other books in the genre. And I, and I want to start off by reading you a paragraph that you wrote to me about the book. And it's just, you know, you just wrote this to me. I thought it was brilliant and I agree with it. And, and yet it's a little counterintuitive and I want to unpack it with you. And you say that the loss of private, privacy is inevitable in postmodern society. And I think on balance, it's a good thing. The standard of would I do this act if everyone was watching adds a whole new dimension to moral development. And I think that's really interesting, and it helps us to sort of open up to what's the felt sense of this new world that's emerging. Yeah. Uh, and the beautiful thing about um, being an evolutionary is that the, the world that we're in, we're just accepting that it's just going to keep on evolving and changing. And... And at, and at Teal, we really like that. We're surrendered to that process. And we're not worried about loss because at Teal, we know it's included and transcend. Um, That's right. Now, uh, this book, you know, it's called Everybody Lies because Seth uh, um, Stevens uh, Davidowitz uh, wanted to have a sexy title. But really, the title could have been Everybody Lies, Everybody Conceals, Everybody Tells the Truth, Everybody reveals. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, and and his book is all about that. Now, I happen to be a revealer type guy. I always have been, and so 
the the revealing part of big data doesn't bother me at all. One of my one of my the wishes is that we could all read each other's minds all the time. I think that that would be great society. I think it would change consciousness. It would, but it would be what a horror show it would be for the, about the first ten minutes. Oh yeah, Woo! it would be. It would be. It would be a horror show for a period of time. <laughs> it definitely would be. Yeah, but really, um, I mean, actually, just to set the bigger context, it's like. Part of what we're, if, even if we look at the evolution of culture, the way the Victorians were, the way our, my, our grandparents were in terms of keeping things close and, you know, the family secrets. And a lot of that's dissolved as we move into modernity and post-modernity. And it's going to continue to dissolve as we just all realize that we're just animals here. We're riding these animal bodies you know, we actually have all kinds of sexual fantasies. I mean, this book is just the sexual part of it alone is, you know, uh, bracing. Yeah, uh, too much the, fun. <laughs> but we all just, it's all pre-forgiven because we're all in the same boat. And that's actually progress. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is a really good example of how the quadrants cross-validate each other. I mean, I, was, I just looking at that and going, because what big data does to us is the, the big data brings us down on the on the local level. You know, I, I I run everything through my experience as a psychotherapist. How does this help me help people grow and be happy and healthy and successful? Well, the one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problems that human beings have, is a subjective sense of isolation, social isolation, isolation from themselves. And that isolation generally involves shame dynamics. And shame is the I want to hide emotion. It is literally I want to hide. When a, when a child first feels shame around 12 months, um, their face goes slack. So they are, they're hiding their facial expression. They look down. So they're hiding eye contact. And their body slumps. They're hiding their body. It's always it is, hard to see in a kid. It is. And in anybody, though it's necessary. Anybody. It, it's, it's necessary for socialization. It's a necessary for, force, which is why I wrote The Gift of Shame. You know, when you have the instincts, what you need to do is guide them into virtuous ev evolutionary development. If you try to suppress the instincts, it drives everybody crazy. So the beauty about big data is that in areas where people historically have felt isolated, they actually discover there's millions of people like me. You know, uh, Okay, so say you're, one of your guilty pleasures if you're a woman is you watch porn. Well, 8% of women watch porn. Wow, that's tens of millions of people. Or, you know, or if you're a guy, according 26% of guys admit it. I personally doubt that statistic, and I have reason to doubt that statistic in that in Canada they tried to have a, a, a study where they were going to compare a bunch of young guys who watch porn with a bunch of young guys who didn't watch porn, and they gave up on the study after two years because they just couldn't find enough young guys who didn't watch porn. <laughs> That's a true story. Another, another, me. another true story is that the promise keepers, you know, the Christian guys that say, oh, we're not going to have sex until uh, I get married. Well, they did a study on a bunch of the promise keepers, and 50% of them had watched porn in the last month. So I think 26% is a lot of people aren't acknowledging. But anyway, statistics like that make you feel um, – better about yourselves and it illustrates a really big deal point that that this i was just so struck by this reading this book to most of us and you know, people come into me all the time i'm scared i'm not normal 
Okay, so I kind of roll my eyes when I hear that because basically what they're saying is I'm scared I'm not good. People translate normal into good. Mm-hmm. Normal is not a lower left quadrant thing. Normal is a, is a right quadrant thing. It's a statistical construct. Okay? Mm-hmm. I always tell people, I'm not in this business to help people be normal by any stretch of the imagination. I want everybody to be abnormally happy, abnormally healthy, abnormally successful, abnormally well-connected. And so what big data does is it helps make that distinction. You know, let's take us back into statistics. You know, statistically, normal is just uh, um, what's normal for a particular universe of people. And big data lets us know that no matter how weird we feel, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that feel the way we feel in this dimension. Mm-hmm. And so what that brings us down to, okay, so that's the normal part. I guess I'm not abnormal. And now we can say, so what we want is healthy. You know, so 5% of women who watch porn um, uh, look for rape uh, scenes. Now, first of all, you got to understand statistics to know what that means. Because that's 5% of the 8% of women who watch porn. Okay, so that's really less, you know, a very, very tiny percentage of women. Um, but... If they see that, well, okay, 5%, they go, well, then if that gets me off, I mean, women who watch rape fantasies don't want to get raped. They just get off watching rape fantasies. And then if they start kind of looking, they can find that there's a lot of data about the ravish me arousal system in women. And they can go, okay, this, now this right quadrant stuff is shifting over into the lower left where they're not feeling isolated and then shifting up into the upper left where they feel more better about themselves. Um, And another interesting thing about this is that because of this raft of data, everybody has to be a little bit better at information processing. Um, Not everybody isn't, but but it explains a statistic that's a really interesting statistic. The average IQ today is two standard deviations higher than it was 100 years ago. Okay? That's, that's That's 20 IQ points. What that means is that a normal person today would be almost genius level if they were tested 100 years ago. And um, um, a normal person 100 years ago would be testing borderline um, mentally handicapped or retarded, we used to say, today. And this is a classic example of a rising tide floats all boats. Mm -hmm. We've, We've had increasingly complex cultures over the last hundred years. And what that does is it's just created people who are a lot better at thinking than they've ever been before. We have the right-hand quadrant stuff. We have the meat, we have the brains. It's all sort of pre-installed. It's funny. Yeah. But we're pulled to the center of gravity of our culture by the age of 18. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if it's a modern culture, here we are and we're able to think abstractly. I mean, there's words for it. It's formal operational cognition. Yeah, and post-formal. And post-formal, as opposed to concrete operational thinking, where you can move objects in space but not abstractions. And that's amazing, actually, to think about that. It's inspiring. You know, this whole thing with the guns and the teenagers? You know, I just turn on the news and watch one of those teenagers start talking, and I begin to cry. I mean, it's like... So, you too. Oh, yeah. Me too. You cry. And, and, And I go, God... This 16, 17-year-old kid is so beautiful and so wise and so yes. deep. And, you know, one thing that we did right is create a culture where this, this level of consciousness can appear in a 17-year-old kid 
And they can have the courage and the chutzpah to look at the president of the United States and challenge him to do what Australia did. And so they're not going to kill me and my friends. I mean, I was looking at these kids, and it just makes me cry. And I go, oh, it's astonishing. It and, is. And, and uh, this one, this, I actually played a, a, a clip on a show yeah, yeah, two days ago. Uh-huh. Uh, where we were talking about elderhood and, and talking about how the, the qualities that we would normally uh, associate with uh, sort of high-end elderhood, wisdom and flexibility and a big heart for everybody, that kind of thing, yeah. is showing up in these 17-year-olds. God. It just- and, I, and, and I would say, and I, I, I couldn't have done anything like that at 17, <laughs> nor could anybody that I know at that age. So something's changing. It's really interesting. You know, yeah. when, I, when I was 17, we had a bunch of schools do a mock UN thing, right? So my school got Syria. So I said, okay, you guys, you know, this was my level of consciousness. We're going to show them all how Syrians think. So first of all, we all got dark glasses and turbans, right? <laughs> then I got a whole bunch of pictures of Syrian kids that had been burned up by, by, uh, by Israelis. So we went there and we distributed all these t- things everybody else talked about peace and love. And I talked like a Syrian would talk. I talked about you fucking Israelis are screwing us over and you're bombing us and death to Israel. And that's what I think. Right. So now that's I'd actually of, give you pretty high marks for that in a way. You know, <laughs> well, it's certainly elevated. I would have done. It certainly elevated the discourse. Yeah. I mean, everybody now had something to push against. We're not all going to be kumbaya around here. I was going, hey, I'm fucking Syria. You right. know. Yeah, yeah, no, I am yeah. not. I am not. You know, something else. You know, I'm not. I'm not Narnia. I'm Syria. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, these kids. I was. I was just. I was just entertaining myself. Essentially, these kids are world centric, and you know, big data. They had access to that Australian uh, data. Mm-hmm. You know? Why? Yeah. The internet. Yep. Um. N- not. Not only that. Do they? They have access to that stuff. To a certain extent, people are some people have an understanding. The concept of fake news now is a big concept. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I know that there's a lot of craziness going on with it and, and projective identification going on. What I mean by that is people that do fake news are the people that, that say you're doing fake news all the time. You know, Trump's a classic example of that. Anytime somebody comes up with a fact a verifiable fact that disagrees with me says fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news. But the thing that I like about it is that it's a construct that everybody now has to understand that people put out stuff that's not, yeah. not real. Okay. Yeah. So now the concept. And just in time. Oh, yes. So the concept of, of cross validation of validating stuff. Yeah. Now this is where big data starts getting really interesting. Because you can take one level of, big, of data and draw a conclusion, and you know, if it's not validated across the other three quadrants, then, and it might not be accurate. A good example of this was the number of child protective service reports went down during the Great Recession. Okay? Mm-hmm. Didn't make any, that didn't make any sense to me. I know that when life conditions get more distressing, people become more authoritarian, which means there's more child abuse. And so it didn't make sense. 
okay, so you go, okay, so let's look at other data sets and cross-validate them. And now we're, we're on the right quadrant. But, you know, my doubt of that started on the left quadrant. You know, my subjective sense of my understanding of myself, since something feels real, my subjective sense in the lower left, my experiences with people around, around crisis and around stress doesn't fit with that data. So mm -hmm. I went deeper. And so what did we find? Well, for every percentage point that the, um, the um, uh, unemployment rate went down, um, the number of searches for um, child abuse um, and my dad hits me, my mom beats me went up. Right. Um, okay. Uh, so let's look a little bit deeper. Um, as we look a little bit deeper, we realize that when there's a financial crisis, the first organizations on the state level, particularly in the Republican states, but even in California, are the social services. So child protective services got overwhelmed, couldn't follow up, and people stopped, started filing, stopped filing reports. Meanwhile, children were, were more and more um, doing searches on my dad hits me, my mom beats me, and more children were dying across the country from domestic violence. Okay? You go a step deeper. Now, this is the beauty of the right quadrants. Yeah. Right. Well, th this is revealed by big data. Yeah. And, and, and actually, to, to, to simplify, mostly Google searches. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, and I love you too. I, and, and what it does is it, is, it, is it begins to challenge the dynamic interiorly of us of self-condemnation and self-judgment and, and, and dissociation, compartmentalization, all the defenses that have to do with us feeling separate. Most of the defenses involve, I don't feel okay. I'm afraid I'm going to get criticism from the collective or I'm giving myself criticism for some part of me. And so I want to hide it. I want yeah. to conceal it. Yeah. Okay. And I feel separate. And social isolation is the biggest health risk in the United States today, way more than any other health risk. Yeah. Okay? And so what big data does is it gives us the right quadrants to be able to say, yeah, the, first of all, whoever you are, whatever you think, there's lots and lots and lots of people that do it. And second of all, whatever it is, there's a healthy version and an unhealthy version. And you can tell in um, Stephen uh, Davidowitz's book, his, his attitude, the voice that he comes from is an integral voice. Mm -hmm. He's looking at everything, dark and light, good and bad. Yep. You know, he's looking at has it. has a with good humor about it. A sense of humor, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it takes me back to Dante. It's not the divine tragedy. It's the divine comedy. Now, that level of compassionate understanding, which is why Buddhist monks are always giggling if they're not meditating, that gives you that sense of humor. That gives you a sense to do what we need to do to grow, which is to connect the different parts of ourselves, which is looking at the different parts, the dark and the light, destructive and constructive, with acceptance and caring intent. Big data gives us a much better platform to do that. We'll say that again. It's looking at the dark and light with caring intent. With acceptance and caring intent. When we do that. That itself is a practice. That's a practice because we are complex systems. And, and we can do that in ourselves. Look at our own gifts. Look at our own shadow with caring intent and, and acceptance. Yes. And we can do that in the collective yes. uh, and look at our culture and say, oh, yes. look at us human beings. We're batshit crazy and yet lovely somehow. And, and, and becoming more lovely and yes. less batshit crazy. 
<laughs> and yeah. when complex in in the complex system of interpersonal relationships, in the complex system of, of an individual consciousness, when we become isolated, we don't look with acceptance and caring intent. Instead, we push it away. Yeah. We don't grow. If we connect it as a complex system, there's a tendency to reorganize to greater complexity, which is more compassion, deeper consciousness, and more love interpersonally. And so big data potentially gives us a lot more tools. It gives me tools as a therapist. When any, anybody says I'm isolated because I'm weirder than everybody else, I go, well, you're not weirder than everybody else. Well, I'll tell you, if anybody comes to you and says, I'm having fantasies about having sex with my stepmother or mother, you're going to say you are in good company. 16%. <laughs> it's like the biggest porn category or something. 16% of men, 8% of women do incest searches on porn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know? but, you know, but, my, but, but we can also see that, that it's like violence in video games and so forth. Uh, putting that in the category of in the subtle realm in terms of fantasy rather yeah. than actual physical reality is a way of moving forward in the yes. system. And normalizing, you know, 25% of women who access porn, which is, you know, not 25% of women, it's 25% of 8%. This is the mm -hmm. statistics thing. They access porn that has pain and humiliation to women, and 5% of the women do rape fantasies, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you're having that conversation, which I've had with different women over the years, the thing is, is okay, so what's the healthy and unhealthy manifestation of that? The first healthy manifestation is that reality and fantasy are really different things. Okay. <laughs> Let's pause there. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's a realization. All right. So, so you say that. Reality and fantasy <laughs> are really different things. And so what we want is to be healthy and happy and connected. Okay. So if in fantasy, that's what gets you off, great. The, the standard for fantasy sex is what gets you off because you're in a private brain. <laughs> right. Okay? The upper left is uh, sacred. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my it, interior it, consciousness. My interior I mean, I have one, one guy I worked with. When he, when he accessed porn, he would never click on a porn site that had the word teen in it. You know, even though, according to Pornhub, everybody's over 18. And so it's like he was gating his porn when, for the word teen, which I right. thought, okay, that's fine, you know, whatever. Yeah. So the upper left. Okay, so that's fantasy. Okay, now in reality, do you have relationships with people where it's consenting adults having a good time getting intimate and so on? Yes. Okay, great. No problem. Okay. Really? Yeah, really. Okay, and now let's explore the healthy and unhealthy aspects of whatever that thing is. Yeah. Okay. And as, as we do that, the person looks with acceptance and caring intent on these things. Some of them light, some of them dark. You know, so the shoot 'em ups, that's a good example. Well, and just to pause there on the sexual part, um, uh, you know, it, it, people could also find each other in ways that uh, do manifest. I mean, if you look at the bondage and discipline and all of that, th that community of people yeah. who are playing out these fantasies in, in real life, it, but in a way that is conscious of what they're doing and yeah. with safety and mutual understanding. I did a podcast with one of, one of our own who's really into that. Oh, really? A couple of years ago, yeah. And I think I heard that. Yeah, and it was back when the Fifty Shades of Grey first came out. Now oh, yeah, a lot of bondage in that. Now. But, you know, that's a hugely successful movie. And, yeah. and so, yeah, to, you know, in, in a way, 
you and I've talked about this before, domination and submission are two poles of the human experience that we don't want to homogenize them. We don't want to just play in the 20-yard lines. But when we do venture beyond the 20-yard lines, we want to be safe. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we could do at a higher stage of development. Yeah, and we want to feel normal. (laughs) And feel normal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, by the way, dominance and submission – are the is the only um, erotic configuration that happens in every single sexual gender choice. Okay, it's the it's a universal. Okay, explain that. I mean that it, whether you're gay or you're straight or you or you're a top or you're a bottom or you're you know whatever whatever you're into, there's somebody who's directing and somebody who's being directed. Oh, fair even enough. If, yes. Even if you turn, even if you trade places it's like dancing yes. you know, trying to have two followers dance or two leaders dance is a fucking miserable dance okay <laughs> so you know somebody's got to lead somebody's got to follow and and so that it's the down and that's that's the masculine and the feminine you know the masculine pole offers direction the feminine pole offers devotional surrender and the better the direction the more relaxed and devotional surrender and that's the masculine opening the feminine the feminine opening up the masculine tolerating the feminine pleasure while still enjoying his own pleasure and she you know like losing herself and then both of them going wherever they want to go right so that's just the way it works yeah right on and those are the drives. Yeah, and that it just incidentally, firsthand experience, it works just as juicily in the gay world. You know, <laughs> the, the, it, it just does. That's just part of the human um, condition. You know, the, the the gifts of being human. Yeah, I you know certainly that's been my experience. Yeah. And so, so what what does that mean? Whatever you like in that, it's normal. You know, twenty yeah. percent of women's porn searches are lesbian searches. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right, that's interesting. You know, yeah, really- and, and, and the, and the number of, of, of gay men, uh, the number of the number one porn search in India among men is I want my wife to breastfeed me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in different cultures, and I mean, human beings. I know. I mean, breastfeed. What me. we're going to do here? You know, it's funny. I have a lot of. <laughs> I got a lot of empathic. Uh, I got a lot of empathy for most consenting adult sexual things. And certainly I remember the taste of breast milk with great pleasure, you know, but you know, it's just, I go, okay, that's interesting. That's gotta be cultural. cultural Cause yeah. Yeah. But it's not like I'm critical. I'm like interested. I no, go, exactly. Wow. It's fascinating. And it apparently, you know, happens and it's nobody's hurt and it's all good. Uh, but wow. <laughs> well, yeah. And a lot of, there's a lot of things like that in this book. And, oh, yeah. You know, the idea that um, people become more anxious after a terrorist event. Well, yeah. not necessarily. I mean, they don't, they don't search for I am anxious or any of that any more than they do on a normal day. Uh, Keep going. Well, I, 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 the, the idea that people in cities are less anxious than people in rural, rural areas, that goes against the sort of conventional understanding. Yeah. You know. I, it's, you know, another thing, this, speaking of cities, he said one of the, the searches was, okay, I want to find out what's the environment that produces um, fame, that, that produces someone who, who rises into the culture to the point where they're elevated. What are, what are the things that, that predispose that? And he found three, three characteristics. 
Um, one of them was to be in a college town. Okay, that makes sense. One of them was to be in an urban center. Okay, makes sense. And the other one was the more immigrants in your community, the more likely you are to become famous. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. There was a surprise. I mean, this book is full of these little Yeah, that's surprises. interesting. Yeah. No, that, 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 that does reveal just how, you know, you, you're forced to have a little bit of a different perspective uh, and that kind of thing can open us up, especially in our younger days, younger childhood. And that makes sense. And, you know, I've been cross-validating this with um, what, first of all, with that complexity stuff, like we were talking about, observing everything with exceptions and carrying and recognizing that you're never alone, that there's always other people that share. But also, I've been cross-validating it with a lot of popularity research that I've been studying. It's a book by Mitch Princeton, who was very interested in popularity. Now, I'm interested in popularity because I'm interested in anything that gets people connected better with themselves and with each other. And, and I know that we all carry autobiographical narratives in our right hemisphere about all the different stories of our life. You know, you know Jeff is lover, Jeff is son, Jeff, Jeff is friend, um, Jeff is as, as business person, you know, um, um, and so on, okay? Well, I contain multitudes. I contain multitudes. You're all, you're, the Walt Whitman thing that I love so much <laughs> that you quote. Okay, now, all those narratives are relational narratives. You're relating with other people, and in those narratives, and, or with the, the multitudes in yourself, and in those narratives, you are more or less popular in those narratives. The more popular you are in those narratives, the happier a guy you are. Okay, so hmm, I want to know about popularity. Popularity has two big components, very, very different components. One is status. You know, that's somebody that you admire, envy, sometimes even fear. Okay, but you're not necessarily like. And, and status is a two-edged sword. A lot of high-status people are miserable and sick. The other component of popularity is likability. Likability is not a two-edged sword. Likeable people have all kinds of advantages. You know, they're healthier, they're happier, they have better relationships, they make more money. People choose them over, over less experienced, less expert people. To, you know, <laughs> everything. It's completely unfair. Likeable people have a complete edge, okay? Yeah, I feel and oppressed. So, well, you're a very yeah, likable person. I feel, I feel marginalized. <laughs> you're marginalized. <laughs> but go on. Well, it's because you're so likable, you yeah. know? You know, it's not enough. I was thinking I was being marginalized by the likable people. <laughs> and but so, anyway, yes, no, I know it's it's clear, and that's that it's obvious. But but uh, the extent to which it's true probably isn't obvious. Likeability is really powerful. And you know, you can measure it in four-year-olds and fifty-year-olds and a hundred and eighty-year-olds, and it's pretty. There's there's certain types that stay for like likable people tend to stay likable. <laughs> people that are people that are invisible can go either way. Uh-huh. And people that are rejected t- tend to stay, you know, unpopular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm working with a couple of people now that are really great people, but they're unpopular. Okay, they have these habits that make people dislike them. Yeah, and you so that a lot. And so it, there, there, there's that happening interpersonally, but also that happens inside us. Okay, and. And so what big data provides and this other stuff provides is a little window into, okay, if you want to feel better about yourself, you need to be more popular with yourself. So let's find the areas where you're not popular and what are the judgments that you have about that? Some of them are valid. Maybe you're unhealthy in certain ways or unattractive in certain ways. 
let's change those. Some of them are completely not valid. Yeah. Most of the, a lot of the most likable people I've ever met really don't realize the power of their likability because it's so natural to them. Yeah. I'll say, wow, you know, you have this great gift of being such a likable person. They go, no, well, what do you mean that? I mean, I just, I'm worried about people liking me all the time. I go, yeah, yeah, you worry about people liking you. What do you think happens most of the time? People seem like, well, as a matter of fact, you see? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard. With them, it's fun to be a therapist because you go, you get to point out to them, you have this great trait that is so right. natural <laughs> to you that you don't even see how great I, it is. I think of it as the Sandra Bullock factor sometimes. I mean, that, I mean, she's, wow. I mean, how can you get me that likable? I know. Does? I, I I can't remember. She played a bitch once, and she and I really couldn't believe her much <laughs> as a bitch. Yeah. And then finally, in the end of the movie, she collapsed and became Sandra Bullock again. And go, oh, oh, thank, thank God. God. <laughs> yes. So then, oh, yeah. So that popularity thing, and uh, so I'm stuck a little bit on it's happening inside of us too. So we're yeah. making judgments of our subpersonalities, or yes. we're okay. Yeah, and so those are all interior relationships. Okay. Now, if I know from, say, uh, social data that, um, and as I do, that pretty much everyone goes through moments of self-doubt, self-loathing, and, self- and isolating, you know, self-worthlessness, what that does, and, and when the, those are dangerous states like depression, because those states of consciousness drive out all other data. You know, people just forget about the fact that I, I felt good this morning. No, no, life, life sucks. Um, and also they forget about the fact that there's things I can do when I feel this bad um, that I don't feel like doing, like connect with other people. Depressed people don't want to connect with other people, but that's what they need to do. Depressed people don't want to go exercise. That's what they need to do. Depressed people don't want to walk out in the sunlight. That's what they need to do, and so on and so on and so on. Now, one thing that the right quadrants do is they give us these lists of things that are associated with what you do when you're depressed that make things better. And, you know, if you have that list on your wall, that might help you, you know, go out and do those, those things. More importantly, it puts you in relationship with your depressed side so you, don't th- so you understand, I don't want to kill that side. I don't want to eliminate that side. I want to integrate that side into my life so it doesn't dominate me and I'm not terrified of it. Well, let's just point out that you're turning subject into object. Yes. And that is the engine of evolution and, and growth is that I was depressed. Now I can see my depression as in, from a new perspective. Yeah. And, and that is a liberation. And so anytime that there's any kind of a lever to help with that, both in the upper left, a subjective inner, inner subjective lever, uh, inner, you know, intra-subjective, or from the lower left, um, inter, intra-subjective, inter-subjective, um, those levers then help us develop. And development never goes to more depressed, more despairing, more, more cynical. Mm-hmm. Depression, that's not evolution. Evolution goes to more, more compassion yeah. and more complex. Yeah. Now, the danger about, here's the danger of big data. The danger of big data is a lot of people don't understand statistics and there's a lot of information that can be used from big data to manipulate people's ideas and people's opinions and people's behaviors, which, like we saw with the Russian hack of the election. And, yeah. and that's right. We're in 1984 territory now. Yeah. You know, this is being done in North Korea. And if we go into North Korea and you talk to a random North Korean person, they're going to say that the United States wants to come and, and uh, 
do horrible things to us and um, they oppress their people and they, they firmly believe that. Yeah. Uh, um, and you, you know, you see corporations all the time. I mean, this is why, well, go on. Well, I was just going to say, Keith, you're getting into territory that you, 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 you touched on earlier. And I really like what you talked about, where you talked about the cross validation mm-hmm. and, uh, and a friend of mine forwarded me an article about just what you're talking about, where they, the, the, they were talking about how uh, you could put words in people's mouths now. You can make videos where people are shown to be saying things that they actually didn't say or that is the opposite of what they believe. So there's a, there's a whole new technology that's just emerging where this will become ever more sophisticated and sort of transparent. And, oh, my God. What, where is that going to lead us? And, um, uh, and, and, you know, where it's going to lead us is bigger bullshit detectors. Yes. Of some sort. I agree with that. Because we're not going to, you know, I mean, it's not going to be pretty. Evolution never is. But this is, um, this is the world. It's, it's interesting, this world to come. Well, you know, since people understand that the Russians are trying to screw, screw our election in the direction of reactionary populist, you know, conservatives, I think that a reactionary populist conservative, if they get something and it's marked, this is from Russia's, is going to go, well, okay, I mean, I, I like right. the idea, but, yes. but, you know, sorry. Yeah, um, thank you. And you remind me, that's our fucking internet. Yes. It's our fucking Facebook. It's our, you know, come on, guys. And this is where, you know, I was so reflexively supportive of the Zuckerbergs and, you know, that these guys really were trying to, and I think they are in their own way. They're blind in certain ways, but come on. Right. And you can't filter out the Russian horseshit? Well, I think, I think there's a lot of really smart people up, up north of me, Silicon Valley, that are, that are really working full time at filtering out bullshit. Well, I, think, I think you're right. Talk about a big embarrassment for a bunch of progressive Facebook <laughs> people. Um, and in Facebook, that's where people lie, okay? So, you know, people don't lie where they click. They don't lie what they look at. You know, they don't like the, right. th- the questions that they ask. Um, uh, you know, when there's abortion restrictions in a state, the number of searches for how do I give myself an abortion go up, which mm-hmm. is a horrifying statistic. Yeah, or, um, or 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 you know, back alley abortions. Uh, back that 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 uh, research or a question comes up. Yeah, yeah. So so you can't. You're not lying there, but but on Facebook, you want to look good because you want to be popular, right? Yeah. And and nobody feels like they're popular enough. You know, I think this is a human thing. There's a general, right? He's got 27 different medals, and he gives himself a 28th one that he doesn't deserve, and then. People find out about it and give him a lot of shit about being a fraud. He goes, oh, God, I'm so ashamed. He didn't need that 28th. He has 27 medals. Who is this now? Well, you know, there was some general a few years ago. That oh, okay. He yeah. got busted for giving himself a decoration he didn't deserve. Right. But he had a bazillion decorations. You know, or some guy will say, yes, I was a professor at, at Harvard when he was actually a visiting lecturer. Well, you know, being a visiting lecturer at Harvard is kind of impressive. Why do you have to say you're a professor? It's like. People push it. They, they, they think to be popular, they have to be something other than themselves. Okay? Mm. And this is a human tendency. Me mm. as myself is not impressive enough, doesn't have enough status, isn't likable enough. 
So I got so on Facebook, I don't want to show people that, yeah, the last week I was struggling like well, crazy. You're helping me see something here that the, the evolution forward is sort of a lowering of the standards of hypocrisy that we put out or the, or the mask. Uh, and, and, and first of all, that requires getting comfortable with it in and of ourselves. And, you know, what, what you're talking about helps with all the, even the big data, what we see around us and other people. Uh, and then also just sort of being more accommodating and forgiving and, and loving to yeah. each other. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you say that, both of us feel that that's a beautiful, good, and true thing to say. Yeah. You know, it, it meets all the validity standards. Be more loving and accepting of other people. You know, all the wisdom traditions agree on this. Nobody disagrees. I mean, I mean, you have Not really, the, yeah, you, <laughs> you have amber, you know, hostility, but that's 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 different, okay. Yeah. And, and which, by the way, is an interesting phenomenon with big data. Amber and pathological orange. Okay, so we're talking amber just for the people, the, oh, yeah. the not experts. Amber's the traditionalists, traditionalists. Uh, and orange are the modernist secularists. Yeah, they have rational thought, but pathological orange is, is egocentric, contaminated in terms, they do objectify other people like amber do, but they don't objectify other people because God tells me to. They objectify other people because I don't mind screwing you to make more profit for me. That's pathological orange. Yeah. Okay, so... Amber and pathological orange, when you point out cognitive dissonance to them, that what you're doing is not either consistent with the highest good, you know, you, you're a Christian and yet you, you feel like going after Muslims, okay, or, that are fellow human beings. Jesus said it's everybody. Or you're, 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 you're doing a business and you're, creating, you're doing something in your business that will eventually hurt the collective and hurt your business by... Uh, you know, the, the, the mortgage bubble is a great example of that. It ruined all these businesses. You point out cognitive dissonances to them, they go crazy um, because it's just really uncomfortable for them. And so they'll either attack you or they'll ridicule you and so on. I, I noticed this first when I saw Bush's campaigns. Bush's can you know, Gore was sitting there giving facts and figures and all this data and policy. And Bush would just get up there and make fun of Democrats. Everybody would laugh about <laughs> Gore, laugh about Democrats. He'd be a likable guy, very likable, very high status. He comes from a rich family. He's a king. Well, and look at the continued degeneration with Trump. It's just uh, incoherent insult. Yeah, and he's not even likable. You know, it's yeah. like... Okay, so I think a lot of people find him likable. Oh, God. But we're, that, those are the traditionalists we're talking about. They... Who, they, he's, their, yeah, he's, the, he's their guy. Yeah, the Fox News people, we like to attack people we don't like. And, and, and I like to attack people that I don't like, too. But, yeah, I'm, me too. but I'm guilty about it. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah, that's and, a little, little bit of progress we could claim. Which brings us to healthy orange, healthy green, greener pluralists, egalitarians, you know, non-hierarchical, multicultural. And the liberals. The liberals, progressives, and then, and then integral, who are you know, basically you know, serve Trying the highest. integrate level. all of it trying to integrate all of it, you point out cognitive dissonance to them, you get data pointing out cognitive dissonance to them, they get uncomfortable with it and start changing their perspectives. They'll resist it, but they'll, they don't like cognitive dissonance. Right. They, they want to Are you talking integralists now? 
Integralist, no, but even healthy orange and healthy green. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's still residual that in yes. me. I mean, I, I sometimes resist it. But there's more and more of me that when I have cognitive, cognitive dissonance pointed out, mm-hmm. that I want to turn towards that. Yes. And that's, that feels like progress. It's, it's, there's always a little wrenching quality to it. But I'm getting a little bit better at it. Well, me too. Yeah, and, I've, I've, and that's a growth mindset. You know, yeah. we'll make, we'll continue to get better at it. Yeah. And going back to what you said about we, about dealing with each other as we are is enough. Once you start relating to yourself as a little spark of God that has mm-hmm. come into the world through this incarnation, filtered up through your personality into the world, and you relate to other people as little sparks of God coming up. What matters is how unobstructed is that spark of God. You know, and it's always obstructed, but, you know, what you want is to be unobstructed and, and what you want to see in the other per- person is first that spark of God and then all the other stuff. Hmm. And, and then, then the other stuff becomes less relevant, you know, whether, you know, they have the extra medal or whether they were, uh, you know, a tenured professor or a visiting mm-hmm. lecturer, or, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. No, it's interesting. It's all interesting, but it doesn't matter in the way that it used to. Yeah. And hallelujah. This is the other thing about big data. Big data helps us see our shadow, our both constructive and destructive unconscious, in a new way. Um, And there's a good example of this is diversity training. Okay, so all these companies hire people to do diversity training. If you go to a company and you ask somebody, somebody, what was your worst experience in this company the last year? They go half the time, the diversity training was easily the worst experience. Just a fucking pain in the ass, useless, you know, uncomfortable. I either felt guilty or I felt victimized. You know, people seem self-righteous. I don't care about those statistics. I'm not like those people. Pretty useless. You know, they're just doing it for life to protect a lot of the companies. They do it because it's, it's risk management. But there's a new form of diversity training that doesn't focus on the, the historical stuff. Instead, it focuses on unconscious bias. It says, look, we're all here doing our best to treat each other respectfully, but everybody has unconscious bias. So let's find out what ours is. Let me tell you what my unconscious bias is. Okay. Um, let, let's do a Stroop test. Uh, the Stroop test is when you, you put a, uh, um, a, a, like you have green, the word green, but it's yellow. And, and you're <laughs> supposed to say, you know, stuff like that where they're measuring reaction times. Most Americans, um, when they see a black man, will have a little bit of a distressed reaction more than other ethnicities and other genders. It's it's, it's implicit unconscious bias from 250 years of, of slavery and racism in, in this country. Okay, so, all right, so there's unconscious bias. And so when you're dealing with that, then the, the training shifts to whenever that shows up, given that I'm not a biased person, given that I'm a fair person, given that I treat people well, when I find that out, as soon as I see it, well, when you observe something, you're regulating it. And so... So what we're turning subject into object, turning subject into object. It's a natural process. And so now it's not about finding out who the jerks are in this company. It's finding out, let's all get, be interested in an ongoing process the rest of our life of noticing unconscious bias and then changing it when we notice it, because of course that's what we want to do. And now I haven't seen outcome data for these new training programs, um, but people like them a lot better. Really? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I um, I noticed one of the notes that you made about the the big data uh, troves was about that forty five percent of people on the polar sides of the of politics is in the same category. Uh, they actually do look at the other side's arguments. They visit yeah. the other side's websites uh, a lot more than we thought with this idea of the echo chamber and people just being completely isolated. Forty five percent of the time. Both progressives go to conservative and conservative. Now you're also you're often looking for stuff to be outraged about. Well, totally. And but I, I actually think that's potent, evolutionarily potent, because you're engaging, even if it's in sort of an adolescent way. Uh, we're adolescents until we grow out of it, and, and the way we grow out of being an adolescent is to be an adolescent. Yes, <laughs> and to be a better and better adolescent. Yes, yeah. And it, and it's still a polarity. And that was another example. I looked at that and I went, okay. My idea about echo chambers just changed. Mm-hmm. That one data yeah. point from big data, and I went, wow, I'm happy to have that change. And it made me feel better about the internet. Yeah. Because, okay, if people are actually having the polarity experience, I trust that experience. Me too. No, I, I, I go to the Reddit and these co- comment sites and stuff, and they're more or less intelligent and more or less, you know, flinging mud. But uh, it feels alive, uh, you know, it feels alive and nobody's getting hurt, just their feelings. Just, just as an aside, <laughs> the, the, the one data point is, is the most popular president before he, between when you were 14 and 24 is your more likely political af- affiliation. Uh-huh. So, I, and, and it peaks at 18. Yeah. And I thought about that. I thought about my brother. My brother and I are, are opposites. You know, I've been, uh, I've been a progressive all my life, and he's been a hardcore. You know, you know if, if the second coming of Adolf Hitler was Republican and ran against the second coming of Jesus Christ, who was Democrat, Gary would vote for the second coming of Hitler. And he might not, but, you know, I think, I think he'd probably ultimately agree with me. And I thought, well, what was happening with Gary when he was 18? When Gary was 18, he was working for the CIA, that he never admitted, as a Marine in Vietnam. And when you were in Vietnam, you had two choices. You either got cynical about what was going on, which is what we see in a lot of vets, or you doubled down on, I'm going with me and my buddies and with, and with the military and with my government, and I'm really not going to pay attention to the other data that shows that this might be a horrible big idea and, and based on lies. And so when you make that kind of decision, all right. You're, you're, and he's been a hardcore Republican. I've been mm-hmm. a hardcore Democrat. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's that it's very interesting. Yeah, and, and also taste in music is what you were listening to at 14 to 16 or 18 or whatever it is. That's just permanently installed as the music of your life. And you, you listen to it for the rest of your life. Sexual uh, preferences, uh, babysitter, uh, that, that's a, a, a teacher. Uh, th- those, <laughs> those fantasies are in the top three or four categories of everybody. You they know, are not to you mention know, mummy, you know. So. Oh God, yeah, it's, that's true. You know, it always blows my mind that 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 or daddy on the gay side actually. Or, or there you go. That the most erotic lingerie for me was the lingerie that was popular when I was fourteen to, to seventeen years old. Really? <laughs> okay, that's 30, 40 years ago, but yeah. still, it's like yeah. okay, no, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fun to feel into that strata and feel you know how that is different than what's been installed since. 
you know, well, you know how we could still access that, how that is so much a part of our identity. And say you accept it. Say you look at that with acceptance and caring intent. What happens is it expands. Hmm. I, the number of things that I find appealing emotionally and erotically has expanded dramatically in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Why too. is that? Well, well, if I started just by accepting, you know, Keith's kind of pansexual energy, okay, <laughs> then... You're the most pansexual monogamous person I could ever imagine. I, talk about I, inhabiting the poles. I know. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. My 45th year of of a monogamous relationship, be a pansexual person, it's, it's, uh, it certainly gives me a lot of empathy for everybody. But anyway, as you accept the different parts of yourself, you discover that capacity for acceptance then goes, okay, you know, then there's a, here's this other thing that I find interesting. Okay. So rather than dissociate from that interest, you follow that interest. Um, this is what has led me to find a lot of the, the core principles of, 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 of the Republican philosophy, as I understand it from people like, you know, Brooks and so on and Buckley. Some of those core principles are very attractive to me, okay? Okay, well, I had to expand to look for the dialectic, for the right polarity, to, to, to do that. And so that's expanded, you know, my, my attraction and understanding. And big data helps that. Yeah, yeah. It's well, that's just, what we're doing here, man. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we good? We're good. We, we cover that. I, I, I really appreciate you bringing it up and, and, and you know, assigning our book report. Assigning our book report. And, and what I love about it is, sure, he's still looking at millions of things from Google and, 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 and um, porn and all this other stuff. But to me, it's super relevant to me and to my clients. You know, it, it hits us in our most private, most intimate selves and relationships. That big data has a capacity to illuminate and liberate us. Mm-hmm. And I go, God, this is such a validation of having, of, you know, Ken said it all along. If you have any kind of quadrant absolutism, you're in trouble. And what do we see with, with Amber? They got lower left absolutism. What do we see with scientism? They have right quadrant absolutism. You know, what do we see with narcissism? They have upper left absolutism. But if you, keep a, if you just keep cross-validating with all four of the quadrants, mm-hmm. you get clearer and clearer visions and more expanded visions. And that, and that, that creates vertical development. Yeah. You know, that pushes yeah. us forward. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and, and the more you practice it, the more you do it naturally. And that is the move into it, inter, more integral, um, you know, a consciousness. And just for people who are wondering what the hell we're talking about, oh, yeah, right. dailyevolver.com and check the theory section at the top of the menu and you'll see the quadrants and you'll see the stages of development. And that's the beginning of all you need to know. And you'll enjoy it. You know, Jed, that's a really good stuff. And I like how you present it on your, on your site. I really like that. Thank you. All right, Dr. Keith. Uh, thank you so much. It's always great to have another shrink in the pundit in the can. Another shrink in the pundit in the can. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Fun. Yeah. Thanks, everybody.